is the Church Law Podcast, where you can get practical solutions for today's leaders. I'm your host, Erika Cole, the church attorney. Welcome back to the Church Law Podcast. My name is Erika Cole, and I'm known as the church attorney. Today, I have with me a fantastic guest you're going to so enjoy. Her name is Sarah Merkel. Sarah is one of only five lawyers in the world to have earned the credentials of certified professional parliamentarian teacher and professional registered parliamentarian. She is the blog editor and primary contributor for The Law of Order, a resource on parliamentary procedure and the law. Sarah has served countless national, regional, state, and local clients, providing the knowledge they need to make sound decisions in an efficient manner. Her extensive public speaking and teaching experience enable her to clearly explain complex concepts to all types of audiences and clients, regularly comment on her ability to make parliamentary procedure interesting and practical. She has spoken to groups ranging from five to 5,000 and is often called upon to present or facilitate in high conflict and high stakes situations. For several years, Sarah worked in a large law firm that has over 500 lawyers. She is now pivoted to serve as the founder and CEO of Civility LLC, where she continues to serve as a parliamentarian and advise clients in matters related to governance. Welcome to the Church Law Podcast, Sarah. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. Thank you. Glad to have you. Yeah. It's our pleasure. So as you have heard, I've shared a bit of your impressive bio, um, but I think the first question some listeners may have is exactly what is a parliamentarian and how might this role serve to be best of best use for churches? So maybe a good place to start is just to say, what is parliamentary procedure? And I laugh about that because folks ask me, you know, they'll say, well, what do you do? And I say, I'm a lawyer, right? And then they say, well, what area of law do you practice in? And the way I describe it to most folks is I am helping entities of all types, including churches, have business meetings, so board meetings, annual meetings, quarterly meetings that are compliant, where we make sure that each person there has an equal right to speak and to information and to vote. And parliamentary procedure is the field that, uh, the field of knowledge, the body of knowledge that governs those types of details in a meeting. So how do we ballot? How do we make decisions? How do we make sure that each person there can be heard and not just the guy who's the talker, you know? And how do we how do we govern those things? And there's a set of rules from parliament that, you know, that's where it started and um, that govern that type of meeting. And so uh, parliamentary procedure is that set of rules. And a parliamentarian is a person who is, charged with knowing those rules and then knowing the governing documents of the group and making sure that the rules are followed in a meeting. I hear the passion coming through in your voice, Sarah, and that is so awesome. And I guess it's really that passion that allowed you to rise to the level of literally being the only woman who's an attorney and who's completed these four underlying tests to allow you to serve as a parliamentarian. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? 
Sure. So I encountered the field um, in my early 20s and thought it was fascinating. I saw it in action. So I saw the effect that it can have on a group of people. And then I also just, God's given me an ability to remember details very easily. So it's, it's a joke in my family. Like I'm not the girl you want to play memory with. And um, it's been that, that has been true probably since I was five, I could beat everyone. And so I just, it, it works, it dovetailed well together. Um, and I learned the material and passed the exams, um, which is just something that a lot of people either are interested in doing or don't want to do, which is, of course, is totally fine. But I think the passion I have for it is I just love the process. If you're going to sit around a table with your family and make decisions, that's one thing. And you kind of already know how people are going to interact and you have a way to protect that decision-making process. But when you get in a group of people you don't know or a large group of people, that becomes a lot harder. And we want to make good decisions. And part of the way you make good decisions, there's a lot of decisions that aren't moral. They're not right or wrong, but you can make them in a right or wrong way. And so I love being able to help people make decisions in a way that's really orderly and really protective of every person there. So that even if not everyone agrees with the result, they feel like the process was fair. No, that's so, so good. And you and I both have been in environments where this is particularly helpful and dare I say needful for churches. But can you explain situations where churches might need to have a parliamentarian? Yes. So in most churches and in a lot of entities, even secular ones, you have some subset of the organization that's making decisions like the board or the executive committee. Okay. And then you have, and let's think about like nonprofits is probably the easiest, largest category. Don't think of a corporation where you might have somebody, one person who has a lot of control. Okay. And then you've got all the members of that organization. So you have those two groups that are making decisions for the organization. And uh, there's a division of responsibility there, but there can be conflict that comes in there. And so in either, in meetings of either of those groups, you want a knowledge of parliamentary procedure there. And then the larger the group or the more significant the decision is where you might need a parliamentarian because. Those are the situations where individual rights are more easily ignored. So in a small group, you you have, if the decision is really consequential, you might not easily ignore a person, but you might easily ignore uh, certain, certain specific rules for how a vote is taken to make sure that looking back, nobody can argue that decision wasn't made in a proper way. If you have a large group, of course, you have more of a risk of an individual or group of individuals being ignored because there might be contrary to the majority opinion. Yeah, that's really good. And let me just toss in, if I may, some examples that our listeners may have seen or experienced or heard about in the news um, where, for example, the hiring of a pastor, that choice, what that looks like, what that process looks like, or the termination of a high-level employee in the church. Another example might be the church's decision to buy a property or sell its existing facility. Like when you have these major choices to be made, it really is critical, especially if it tends to be a hot button issue um, to ensure that you have a structured process in place and maybe a person with Sarah's high level of knowledge to help facilitate the discussion. 
Yes. And situations where people are, uh, where there's decisions about how people come to be members of a group or come to be removed as members of a group. Those are situations, obviously highly contentious, even more so in a church. So often you need someone there who, who is charged with being impartial. A parliamentarian's ethical responsibility is not to have a stake in the game. So I always tell people, I think you're wonderful and I hope you win the election, but I really, at the end of the day, don't care if you do, because <laughs> um, we're going to do it right. And so that's one risk. Um, I know you didn't ask this question specifically, but that's one risk of having a, a person who's a parliamentarian who's part of your group is that it gets harder for them to be impartial. Well, also, can you can you share a little bit with our listeners about how your work and your faith connect? Um, because you and I have the honor of being um, on the senior editorial advisory board for church law and tax. And so as a person of faith, how do your work and faith connect? So as a follower of Christ, when you look at Christ's ministry, one thing that he consistently brought to people, no matter what they what they brought to him was compassion and a, res- a high respect for their humanness and their individuality as a person. They're, they're unique. And he treated each person with a respect for that and a knowledge of that. And when you look at parliamentary procedure and the equality that it values, it is it requires a lot of us because when you're in a group of people, you you really do grow weary of that guy in the back who is contrarian and you don't want to, we're all human, right? You don't want to bring compassion to him. You really just want him to be quiet. Um, and so what I love about parliamentary procedure is that it, what, what it requires of us is to treat that person equally and to say, you you get to speak. You don't get to dominate, but you get to speak. And we're going to listen to you. We're going to hear you through. And that's part of making a good decision. And so I think that's, it requires a lot of me. I don't always feel that way about the guy in the back, but it, I think it's so reflective of the Lord and how he dealt with people that he just never wrote anybody off and that he, he approached them as a whole person and with compassion. Sarah, that's, that's beautiful. Um, I've got to say the next time I hear the guy in the back, I'm going to think differently. So. <laughs> it's hard, but he has a reason for his views. So. I appreciate that. So you and I talked offline about um, how sometimes God bless pastors, but you know they share their bylaws and they, from their perspective, they're being helpful to their church pastor friend who says, you know, who needs some bylaws. But can you share with our listeners as to why that might not be the best option? Yes. And I mean, speaking, I have so much compassion for that, right? You're planning a church or you're, you just become a pastor at a church and you're trying to do a thousand things. And so you call your buddy and you say, you might say, what are bylaws, (laughs) which is okay. And then the next thing is you say, can I borrow yours? And, and you crib them. And it's not wrong to necessarily start there. But what I would encourage you to do next is not to copy and paste that and do a control find and then replace their church name with your church name. Um, but to, to start by reading them and saying, what do I think about these? And what do I think might need to be different in ours? And then don't feel pressure to be the expert on the bylaws for your church. You have, you have a lot to do. Don't be above finding another staff member or member of your board of deacons, elders, leadership board, or qualified member in the church to help you. 
and to also read them and then to do the legwork, what should actually, what's missing, what should be changed and come back to you with the goal of the document you have at the end, not being perfect because you want to be in a cycle of constantly evaluating that document, whether it's effectively serving your church, but with the goal of having an initial document that you know what's in there, you don't have to have it memorized, but you know what's in there and you can defend it. No, that's so well said. And I do love that angle of recognizing that church leaders, you know, generally speaking, you have someone who's called to pastor, right? Or called to be a church leader of some sort and not a lawyer like you and me, right? So it is really helpful to recognize that, you know, Google has its place or sharing a document from a (laughs) fellow fellow pastor or church leader has its place, but maybe where we want to go from there. So that I think that was, that was awesome to, to, uh, an awesome perspective. Um, so what level of knowledge do church leaders need to have regarding governance structure and governing documents of the church? And why is having this level of knowledge important? I think you were sort of suggesting this in, in our earlier discussion. Right. So first of all, you need to know the terms, articles of incorporation, bylaws, parliamentary authority, special rules. If someone says those terms to you, you should at least be able to smile and nod your head with a basic understanding of what those are, not deer in the headlights. So you need to know what governing documents you have, and then you need to to be moderately familiar with them. Then you need, so that's baseline for anybody that's in leadership at a church. So if somebody comes up to you and says, hey, what do our bylaws say about X? Your response isn't what are bylaws? or I'm not sure if we have any, or I haven't seen those in a long time. It is, you know, I think it might say this, but I'd have to look at the details to be sure. And then what I would do is designate somebody on your leadership staff to be the person who knows those documents backwards and forwards. And um, not like, not the kind of knowledge that if you wake, if I wake you up at 1.30, you have to recite it, but that you know enough that if somebody's doing something in a meeting or proposing something, it raises a red flag in your mind about like, I wonder what the, our bylaws say about that. I don't think we can do that. Yeah. Um, and the reason that's important is because, so I do this for a living. I love it. I fully recognize that not everyone does. And so either does it for a living or loves it. And so um, there's, there's this tendency because you want to do other things that are more exciting to kind of just shove that in the bottom drawer of the dresser. And the difficulty with that, the danger with that is that it usually starts, starts popping out of the bottom drawer of the dresser at like the, the totally worst time. Mm-hmm. where you're trying to vote on the new pastor of the church. And now we've got to make sure the ballot is going to be proper. And we don't have a clue how to do that, or we don't know actually how we bring on a new pastor. And then we do it in a wrong way. And now we've got a segment of the church that's really mad about that. Mm-hmm. And then it becomes this huge mission distraction. And I feel so strongly that mission distraction is terrible for any organization, but it's especially terrible for the church of Jesus Christ. Um, You want to have your focus on bringing people to Jesus and on the gospel. And the last thing you want is to have an argument about whether somebody could vote or whether the ballots were right or whether this pastor really should be here. So it pays to have somebody who's monitoring that and it pays to follow it. It will serve you well. 
Sarah, you have explained that so very well. And I think it's so interesting that, you know, it's like we've lived the same lives, me on the (laughs) church attorney side and you as the parliamentarian, because no matter what the issue is, no matter what kind of challenge or what kind of opportunity, frankly, churches may have, those core governing documents are going to be the starting point. Right. So if you are looking to buy property, if you're looking to expand, if you're looking to hire at that senior level, if you are looking maybe to merge or whatever the situation is, people like Sarah, people like me, um, your accountants even perhaps are going to want to know what these documents say. So it really is critical that we have a level of comfort around them. Um, So let me ask, what are the biggest pitfalls for churches when it comes to governance and business meetings? So where I see folks fall into trouble most often, so let's just talk like business meetings. Let's not talk Let's set aside sort of content of bylaws for a moment, because that's often driven by whether you're part of a fellowship, denomination, association, kind of how your church governance is structured. But let's say you have that set and now you're headed into a business meeting. The the points where I see people get in trouble, often the root starts with the leadership wants something. They've been talking about it for a long time. Now they want to send it to the membership for a vote but they haven't taken the time to bring the membership along. And the membership has legitimate questions and maybe even questions that the leadership had at the beginning of the discussion, but the leadership has forgotten those questions. And so what, because we're all human, when someone starts asking us questions about the idea we've been working on for some time that we think is awesome, we get a little defensive. And then that creates this tendency on the lead part of the leadership to sort of railroad the decision through. And that's not unique to churches. I see it everywhere, but I think it's especially damaging in churches because you layer on this spiritual element and that gets real confusing for people. Like, but God wants us to do this. Well, he might, but you've got to send it to the membership. (laughs) And so that the, the, the um, right thing to do in that situation is to just take a minute, take a step back and listen to the person's question. But Then if we bring that, if we filter that down a level and get to the actual business meeting. So that's sort of the root often that is driving some of these other mistakes. But I see people um, in churches get in trouble when it comes to a special meeting. So they've got to, they want to hold it. They've got a quarterly meeting set, but it's not for a while. And they've got this great idea. So they want to hold a special meeting or they've got some sort of crucial decision that needs to be made. That's fine. But when you hold a special meeting, you have to give people enough notice of the meeting you have to tell them when it's going to be, where it's going to be at. If it's going to be on Zoom, send them the link, make sure they can access it and do that with plenty of time for them to get there and then tell them what you're going to talk about. And you have to then keep whatever you do talk about within the perimeter of what you said you were going to talk about. So the example I always use is if I tell you on Saturday morning at 8.30 a.m., we're going to have a homeowners association meeting about whether to paint the mailbox is blue or brown, you're probably going to sleep in. But if at that meeting, we talk instead about whether to build a golf course or a swimming pool, well, you might've come. And so when special meetings, you have to tell people what you're going to talk about and then keep it within the perimeter. I think the other um, big places people get into trouble are, especially churches, keeping accurate, up-to-date membership roles. So you have this situation where um, Sarah Merkel has not been attending for three months 
And then now we're going to have a vote on a new building renovation. And so she comes out of, or a new pastor, some big decision. So she comes out of the woodwork along with all her friends and she wants to vote. And you're mad because she hasn't been attending the church for a while, but you haven't removed her from the membership rule, or maybe you don't have a, have a process for that, but she gets to come and cast a vote. And that, that just gets real rocky in churches. And the solution to that is to keep, to have a procedure for, for who gets to stay on the membership role, who gets to vote, are there different levels of membership, and then to keep it up to date. And of course, that's just gotten so much worse with COVID too, but you, you have to be careful. You can't just say, oh no, you can't vote um, because you haven't been here in X number of days or weeks unless you have a process for that. So those, those are some of the big ones. And uh, again, the, the right thing to do there is not to push it through, it's to take a step back, take a breath and say, how can we do this fairly? knowing that you'll get to the right result if you have the right process. So Sarah, I feel like you have lived in my universe for the past 23 years because <laughs> these kinds of issues really can rock a church to its core. I have seen um, occurrences surrounding membership, who has the right to vote, the exact kind of scenario that you've described. And as you suggested, and you know, listeners can echo that there have been a myriad of COVID-related challenges impacting church operations. So a lot of these issues that you just talked about, I call it, you know, the COVID layer, you know, has just made it even more complicated. So one big issue was business meetings. And I certainly have gotten numerous calls over the months about, oh my gosh, you know, I've looked at my bylaws and they're silent to this issue of virtual meetings. And so what tips or cautions do you have around virtual church business meetings and how do people handle it potentially if their governance document is silent? Yeah, so th this is hard. So there's, a, there's kind of two big questions when it comes to virtual meetings, virtual business meetings. One is, can you have them? And the other is, if you can, how do you do it properly? Or if you can't, what do you do? How do you triage? So the first question you need to always answer is, can we have one? And people just assume that you can. And the, the way to answer that question, and the default is, is that you cannot actually, unless you have state law that says you can, or your bylaws say that you can. And often state law will have a different rule for a board meeting versus a membership meeting. So like they'll allow the a board to meet virtually, but not the membership. And so... Um, answer that question first, find your state nonprofit law, find your bylaws and find out whether, uh, they say that you can meet not physically in person together. If they, let's answer if they do not say that. So if they, if you do not have really permission to validly meet virtually, you have a couple of options and one is state law will often let you make a decision outside of a meeting if you can get a unanimous one. And that may seem impossible for some organizations, but it isn't impossible for everyone and it isn't impossible on every type of decision. So that may be a way to triage by getting all the members to agree in writing unanimously, or sometimes state law will say you can agree in writing. And if you have a majority, then you can, you can count that as a vote outside of a meeting. Um, the other big uh, helper there is that you could go ahead and meet virtually with the expectation that whatever decision is made will later be ratified in person by the by the group at a properly called meeting. 
So when you're deciding whether to use any of those stopgap efforts, what you need, the question you need to be asking yourself is what is the risk? So think of a spectrum of risk and on that spectrum, put the, um, how consequential is the decision? So if it's a minor decision, but it's something that needs a decision that needs to be made for you to keep operating, that's very different than changing your bylaws virtually or hiring or firing a pastor virtually. So think about how consequential is this decision and think of that spectrum of risk. How likely is it to be ratified? How together is the group on this decision? Okay, then if you can have a virtual meeting, you need to kind of run through a list of questions. So I I encounter a lot of groups, churches and not, who just kind of think everybody can jump on Zoom and have a great business meeting. And um, it's not that easy. So here's some things you should be asking yourself. One is how, how, do we, how do we know we have a quorum? And for churches, that's especially difficult because often in organization, there will be only one person behind that Zoom screen because they're the only member of the household that's a member of the organization. But in a church, you have likely at least two of you in the household who are members of the organization. So you can't just count the number of in people entities signed on to Zoom. You have to know how many people are represented behind that screen. And there's ways to figure that out, but it helps to do it ahead of time to have a process, right? Mm -hmm. Then how are you going to protect everyone's right to speak? And the way to do that is not through the chat. Chat violates every sort of rule of equal discussion that we have because one person can dominate the discussion and there's no recognition of folks in an orderly manner. So the best way I have found to do uh, recognition of people on Zoom is to have them use the green check mark or the red X for whether they want to speak in favor or opposed. And then you can recognize them individually and say, Sarah McGossie, you want to speak in favor, please unmute yourself and speak. And then how are you going to vote? So the question you need to ask there is, does the vote we are taking have to be taken by a secret ballot? Or do we always just take everything by secret ballot in our church? If you're going to do secret ballot, you tip, you pretty much have to use a platform that's separate from Zoom. And there are good voting platforms out there. But if you use Zoom, it's it, it at some level is going to attach the person's name to the vote. If it doesn't have to be secret, Zoom the Zoom polls actually work quite well and um, are helpful because folks can see the results coming in so they feel really comfortable that their vote is being counted or that it's going the way they thought it would go. So those are some, those are some tips and tricks when it comes to virtual business meetings. But the takeaway there is that to make sure you can have it and then to make sure you do it properly and to think about it ahead of time so that you don't get three months down the road and somebody say, you know, I don't really think we made that decision properly. And then again, now you have mission distraction. I love this. This is so, so helpful. And again, this is, this is real life, right? This, these are things that happen within um, church operations that, you know, hopefully the information that listeners are receiving will help them avoid this issue of mission distraction. I just, I love that, that language there. One other thing that I have seen is that a church will have in their bylaws that they will follow Robert's rules of order. Yet no one really knows how to do that. (laughs) And um, I'd be curious your feedback about including that requirement in a church's bylaws. Yes. So this is a really hard thing because Robert's rules, it gets such a bad rap, right? Because it's, it's complicated and it's not bedtime reading for anyone unless they can't go to sleep. So, and need help. (laughs) 
Um, so then it becomes, it, it feels cumbersome to put that in your bylaws. And I think that there's a couple ways to navigate that. One is to go ahead and put it in with the understanding that it is okay to do the best that you can. It is okay to look things up and there is a way to understand parliamentary procedure. If you understand that it is based on an equal right to information, vote, and, and discussion, you can slot some of the more specific rules into that framework, or you can use that framework to then say, something doesn't seem right here. I'm going to go find the precise rule, but it prevents you from feeling the pressure to have that book memorized. And it is like a lot of things you use 20% of it, 80% of the time. So that. Comfort yourself with that if you have Robert's Rules of Order in your bylaws and you're required to, to use them. If you don't have Robert's Rules of Order in your bylaws, I would encourage you to either put it in or to have some provision that, that states what rules you're going to follow. Because to the extent that it's silent, then you have a lot of controversy about what, what is going to apply in a, a, a situation, which of course, it's already ongoing by the time you figure that out. <laughs> so now I did have a client uh, several years ago and I loved this and they, I helped them revise their bylaws. This is a church. And they said, you know, Sarah, we really don't want to put Robert's Rules of Order in there to follow. Um, it makes us nervous and we don't want to have anybody that has to know that. And so, you know, what can, what can we do instead? And they asked me if they, if I thought that, we could just write a set of rules that applied to them. And so at first I was a little incredulous because I was like, oh, I'm not sure I'm up to that. And I asked them some questions about their business meetings and they they did have a situation where things were, what, what the membership could do, what the elder board could do was very well defined. And they had a, a good history of operating in a collegial way. And so I was able to write them a set, a two-page set of rules that said, this is how we're going to do our business meetings. And I just throw that out there so you know that that is an option. It has to be the right scenario to work. But because, of course, you reach a point where you would be writing a set of rules that was so specific, you might as well just write, adopt Robert's rules anyway. But if you can keep it at a little bit of a, a simpler level, that is, and you want to do that, that, can, that is a possibility. It is an option. First of all, to be able to write a set of rules for a particular church, but also as a lawyer to keep that to two pages, that's miraculous. So uh, that's very interesting. I've, I've never actually heard of a, a church having its own set of rules outside of and maybe to further incorporate into the bylaws instead of Robert's rules. But I love that concept and I'd love that you were able to help them in that way. So anything else you want to share? And also, um, please let our listeners know how they can connect with you. Sure. If you, uh, I think if, just like in closing, I would want to encourage your listeners to not be afraid to get outside help. So you uh, are a good church lawyer. <laughs> um, I work with churches. There are others of us out there. And Sometimes when I work with churches, I find that like this hesitancy to bring in an outsider and because there's a risk there and I understand that, but it can help you so much because what that outsider, that outsider doesn't have a personal stake in the result. And so it can give you some impartiality. It can give, give you some help in dealing with specific members. You may be at a place where 
Joe member, like you're just exhausted by him and you have no, nothing left to give. You're really struggling. Like you want to be compassionate and helpful, but you just don't have any more left. And that's where somebody who's been on the outside the whole time can come in and talk with him and say, I will hear you through. I will dialogue with you because I don't have a stake in it. And of course, then he knows Joe member knows I don't have a stake in it. He'll, he'll approach it differently. So I would just say to your uh, listeners, don't be afraid to bring somebody in from the outside. It doesn't mean it's going to cost you a million dollars. It doesn't mean it's going to go badly. Sometimes, oftentimes that person can really give you the perspective that you need because they are on the outside and they're just sort of less invested, I guess, personally invested. Mm-hmm. I can be contacted. So my website is civility.co and civility spelled just like let's be civil, C-I-V-I-L-I-T-Y. And then my email address is smerkle, M-E-R-K-L-E. So smerkle at civility.co. And glad for anybody to reach out. Always happy to talk with folks about their questions. Thank you so much for being here and for sharing your incredible and unique skill set with our listeners today. Um, we will include all of your information in the show notes. And I'll also mention that I have an easy to use downloadable on church bylaws. So if you really want to compare and see maybe what needs to be included in your bylaws and and compare that to what you're currently using, I've got an easy to use free downloadable on churchattorney.com. And um, thank you so much again, Sarah, for being with us today. We really appreciate your, your knowledge and, um, and as a person of faith uh, doing this work, thank you. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. I've loved it. Always good to talk about these things. Indeed. All right. Well, listen, I look forward to being back with you next week where we will share more interesting information with inspiration on the Church Law Podcast. See you then. for listening to the Church Law Podcast. We invite listeners like you to submit questions and comments. Send your email with the subject line podcast question to contact at takethenextcall.com. This podcast is brought to you by Church Law and Tax, part of Christianity Today's podcast network. This podcast is designed to provide accurate and authoritative information in regard to the subject matter covered. It is provided with the understanding that the host and the publisher are not engaged in rendering legal, accounting, or other professional services. If legal advice or other expert assistance is required, the services of a competent professional person should be sought. Due to the nature of the U.S. legal system, laws and regulations constantly change. Listeners are encouraged to consult with legal counsel to verify the information provided here remains current. Visit churchlawandtax.com for more insights.